Hi, everyone. I know recently we announced we were going to two episodes a week and then three episodes a week. But you know what? There are just too many episodes. So we are going to back to five episodes a week. Still a reduction from seven, but there were just too many interviews scheduled, and I didn't want to make all the authors wait for too long. So I hope you can keep up with me. Listen to one a week as you're on your way to work or on your way home or putting your kids to bed or whatever it is you're doing. Moms don't have time to read books now five times a week. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. If you like this podcast, you will love my new anthology called Moms Don't Have Time to Have Kids. Check it out, and you'll hear from 49 authors about all sorts of things moms don't have time to do. All the authors have been on this podcast. Also, check out my TikTok, at with Zibby and Tracy, my other podcast, Sex Talk with Zibby and Tracy. Check out Moms Don't Have Time to Write on Medium. And of course, my new publishing company called Zibby Books. And now back to our daily author interview site and a quick hello from some of my kids. Hi. Hi. Hello. Enjoy the show. Happy New Year, everyone. I hope you all had a great break. I wanted to let you know about something that I've been talking a lot about on social media at Zibby Owens, which is the hashtag 22 in 22 challenge. We are at Zibby Books. We are encouraging everybody, like all of you, to visit 22 bookstores in 2022. And we're going to provide a whole series of incentives for every five visits, and you'll be entered to win a $500 shopping spree, and you'll get fun things like bookmarks and all the rest. Plus, you'll be part of a great community of people all helping support bookstores, authors, and more. We're really, really excited about it. If you want to join, sign up. You just go to 22in22.net. That's 22in22.net and click I'm in and put your information. And then every time you go to a bookstore, you just quickly go back on the site and click log a bookstore visit. And then we'll be keeping track and we'll be following up with all of your different achievements and awards and everything. So please sign up, spread the word, 22 and 22, get your friends to join and start visiting bookstores and it'll be really fun and exciting. So here's to a wonderful 2022. I'm so excited that you're listening to my podcast and doing all the fun things that I have been trying to bring into the world. So here we go, 2022, hashtag 22 in 22. Jacqueline Woodson is the author of the children's book, The Year We Learned to Fly. 
Jacqueline is the recipient of the 2020 MacArthur Fellowship, the 2020 Hans Christian Andersen Award, the 2018 Astrid Lindgren Memorial Award, and the 2018 Children's Literacy Legacy Award. And she was the 2018 to 2019 National Ambassador for Young People's Literature. Her New York Times bestselling memoir, Brown Girl Dreaming, won the National Book Award, as well as the Coretta Scott King Award, a Newbery Honor, and the NAACP Image Award. She also wrote the adult books Red at the Bone, a New York Times bestseller, and Another Brooklyn, a 2016 National Book Award finalist. Her dozens of books for young readers include Coretta Scott King Award winner Before the Ever After, New York Times bestsellers The Day You Begin and Harbor Me, Newbery Honor winners Feather, Show Way, and After Tupac, and Dee Foster, and the picture book Each Kindness, which won the Jane Addams Children's Book Award. Welcome, Jacqueline. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books to discuss the year we learned to fly and just so much else. Thank you so much. Thanks, Zivi. I'm glad to be here. And this is so nice. I feel like I was so excited the first time I saw you on a little Zoom for the Center for Fiction board meeting. I was like, oh, this is so nice. And now you have an even bigger square on my Zoom. So there you go. We're like trading up in the world. And then we'll be back on that little square again. Yes. So hopefully <laughs> at some point in real life, we'll have a board meeting. So That would be nice. Would be I so actually nice. saw you with Kwame Alexander, who had been on my podcast a couple of years ago when he brought the Kwame bus or whatever. Do you remember the bus that was? <laughs> yes, yes. Outside. Anyway, so. Did he bring it to you? No, no. He brought it to the Center for Fiction. So I grabbed oh. my kids and we went over there and watched and you were on stage and there was, I remember the other. Anyway, there were like two other people. Yeah, it wasn't Jason. Oh, no, no, no. It was people um, from Kwame's yes. imprint. So it was probably Lamar and someone. Yeah. Don't ask me the names. I, I would recognize their faces. But anyway. <laughs> okay. So the year we learned to fly. Let's talk about this book, which is absolutely beautiful. Illustrated by Rafael Lopez. Talk about the inspiration for this beautiful children's book. <laughs> Thank you for asking. You know, it's so it's so weird to have it out in the world. It's weird to have a new book out in the world and to be on this quote unquote book tour. I mean, I'm so happy to be able to be home, to not have to leave my family and the dogs in Brooklyn and be able to go out into the quote unquote world. But it's it's surreal. It's definitely surreal. And I think about when I first started writing the year we learned to fly was before there was even a pandemic. And so it was this idea of writing about escape in the way that even when we're getting punished or, you know, having time out that we still have control over our mind and the places that we can go inside of it. And, and so, you know, I'm writing and rewriting. And then at some point I decided I wanted to revisit Virginia Hamilton's The People Could Fly, which is a retelling of African-American folktales. And one of the folktales in the book is about the history of enslaved people and the idea of them flying back back across the water to home, back to Africa. And I thought, wow, what if I took that idea and brought it into the 20th century and and the and you know the the descendants of those ancestors were a part of this narrative. And that became the year we learned to fly. And in the course of writing it, of course, we all had to figure out how to fly. (laughs) We all, you know, suddenly were in the house with our beloveds and with our children and with our pets and with no place we could physically go. And and so I'm, I'm, I'm chuckling about it, but at the same time, I'm like, it's you know, careful what you write about. (laughs) (laughs) That's so funny because I was so sure when I read it that you had written it during the pandemic. I was like, oh, this is perfect. How helpful is this? It's... 
No, I couldn't have dreamed this pandemic. I couldn't have dreamed so much of this past, you know, this past year and a half. So, Oh my gosh. Well, this whole notion of sort of escaping through imagination, I mean, that's really at the crux of storytelling and writing to begin with, right? And the, the, what you think about and where you take your mind, yes, you can just fantasize, but then so many so much of that arrives on the page in some way, shape, or form. So it's almost like it's like the pre-writing, right? It's like the imaginative yes. stuff before it lands exactly. that you're really captivating and encouraging, which is so important. Oh man, it is. Especially now. I interviewed Brendan Slocum yesterday and I had been telling, I told him about you on his podcast. He wrote uh, The Violin Conspiracy. Have you heard mm-hmm. about him? Yet? Yes, yes. Oh my gosh. Anyway, I, I feel like you two need to meet and do an event together. I just, I told him, I just told that his publicist this too. Not that this is any of my business, but you know, there were so many similar themes of, of what you do when your circumstances are sort of working against you and how mm-hmm. do you cope with that? And one way is to like, it's the power of your mind and optimism and perseverance yes. and all of that. So his was in the context of, you know, being a, a black young violinist and having so much opposition but anyway yeah he's brilliant too he's so brilliant so it's amazing i I can't believe he and i haven't met yet it's interesting because you know my dog we have two huge dogs that are half poodle half german shepherd and and so they're huge you can only see one third of him but (laughs) the the older one who's four years old it has been sick and we've been trying to figure out it what it is and and I'm just like, you know, it's, it's fungal. It'll go away. And my partner who's a physician and knows these things is like, I think it is something different from that. I'm like, I'm going to do my magical thinking. <laughs> and thinking about, oh my goodness, I'm blanking her name, but the year of magical thinking who just passed away. Joan Didion. Uh, Joan Didion. And, and remembering her book, the year of magical thinking and, and the death of her husband and all that. I, I am such a true believer of the power of magical thinking, of the power of optimism and how how it can be a force, if not changing the situation, at least getting us through it. Right. <laughs> so. It's so interesting. I feel like your whole thing is looking up, right? Even the cover, it, you, you know, they're mm. learning to fly, thinking of the sky. And I feel like when I'm in really stressful situations, I do the exact opposite. And I look, I have to look down. Like, I feel like if I look up, it makes me too anxious, like all these things coming. So I'm like, if I just look at what's right on my desk or at my feet or right in front of me, then I can get through whatever this is versus, you know, escaping in some way. I don't know. That's so interesting. I mean, it makes absolute sense that, you know, that moment by moment way of getting through stuff, because it is overwhelming when you look out there and see how much more work there is to do. So I find when I'm writing, if I go outside, well, not so much anymore because my eyes are much better because I had eye surgery, but I, I used to take off my glasses because I, I I wanted the world to be blurry. <laughs> I didn't want to have any more stimuli coming toward me. So Interesting. I can't really do that now. My eyes are starting to get blurry and I'm trying to ignore it. My husband keeps being like, go to the eye doctor. And I'm like, no, no, no. And then I keep like holding my menu like over here. He's like, this is getting embarrassing. You know, it's time. Uh, Anyway, Uh, I'm holding the phone with the light on it for the menu. Yeah. I was literally at a restaurant, obviously straining too much that the guy, like the maitre d' guy, like brought me over a lantern. Like I was 85 years old. I'm like, this is so embarrassing. Anyway. He could have brought you over a large print menu. Yeah, I know. It's yeah, just so bad. Wait, so how did you get 
here? How did you become a number one best-selling <laughs> author, a National Book Award winner, and like all the stuff, Hans Christian Andersen Award? Like it's amazing <laughs> what you've accomplished. Like, did you always know? When did it start? Like, how did you do it? I've known I wanted to be a writer since I was seven. I love the physical act of writing. I loved. The, the scratch of the pencil on paper. I mean, it was so visceral for me, that physical act. And I, I love it. And I, I think of it like a visual artist in terms of watching letters form on the page felt like magic to me. That, And I didn't know it then, but I saw the power in it, right? I saw the power in how when you put a word on the page, that word became something and that sentence became something. And it wasn't just about me anymore. It spoke to other people who could read it or who I could read it to. But yeah, at seven, I didn't know any of this, but I felt it. It's so so it was it was more of a feeling. And I love telling stories. I got in trouble. I talk about this a lot for lying all yeah. the time. I would make <laughs> up stories all the time. And, and I would say I wanted to be a writer, I, a physical writer. Like I just wanted to write. And I and, and I think at that age, I didn't know what that meant. I wanted to write. I wanted to physically write every day <laughs> and, and the storytelling. So, of course, those started kind of coming together as I got older. And I was writing poetry and short stories and stuff, but I, I never knew it was going to be this. I remember being around 10 or 11 and being in my bathroom in the mirror with my hairbrush, giving a thank you speech for the Pulitzer Prize. And, and, and I, all I knew was that this was an award that was given to writers. And so, and it was the only one I knew, like, even though we had the Newberry sticker on our books in school, I didn't make that connection that that was a writing award, but I had heard something about the Pulitzer Prize in writers. So I was thanking, you know, my readers. By the way, I did the same, I did the same thing <laughs> at the same age, but I didn't, I didn't even know about the Pulitzer Prize. So I would get up and pretend like, congratulations, you're the youngest person who's ever written a book. And I'm like, thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> That's so funny. Oh man, mirrors and hairbrushes. That's the whole, yeah. that's a, a whole other story. Anyway, keep, keep going, keep going. So, no, no, I know I, it, it. I love, I love the connection. The fact that I wasn't the only one doing that in my, you know, Bushwick apartment, but, but I, it, I, I, I didn't have a backup plan. I really didn't have a backup plan. My mom and grandma wanted me to teach or be a lawyer or do hair or something that was going to earn an income because that was what they knew. They, we, we had been a family of the Great Migration. You know, we came here from South Carolina. And part of that migration narrative is the idea of better opportunities for your children, right? It's the same as the immigrant narrative. You come from a place of oppression, which was the South, during and post Jim Crow, and you go to a place where there's opportunity, which was the North, New York City. And their idea of of someone making it was getting a job and having a pension or marrying someone, marrying a man, you know, it's very heteronormative, marrying a man who would provide for you. And that wasn't in my narrative, neither one of those things. I had no interest 
in this idea. I never, I wasn't one of those girls who dreamed a wedding. I wasn't one of those people who thought that I would work the same job and go into an office and punch a clock and have a boss and, and get a paycheck and, and have a fixed income, which I understood because my mother always talked about being on a fixed income when we wanted something extravagant <laughs> and her salary was the salary in the house. But so, so I knew I, writing brought me the most joy and I didn't know how I was going to do it. So I, I, I knew it eventually have to take odd jobs to pay stuff like rent and get out of my mom's house. But, but I, I didn't dream this. I, I really didn't dream this. I, I do know that I wanted to do what I loved and writing was the thing I loved. What were, what were some of the oddest jobs? Oh my God. What? Well, I worked at Haagen-Dazs on, on the Upper East Side, 63rd and 1st, I think it was. And then one on a 60 something at first. And I worked on the one on 52nd and 3rd. I worked as a teenager, of course, I worked in fast food restaurants, even though I didn't eat fast food. I worked as a word processing secretary for a long time, mainly as a temp secretary at different banks, like manufacturers, handover trucks, banks that don't even exist yeah, yeah, anymore. I remember, I remember that. <laughs> and I worked with runaway and homeless kids. I, I worked for Blue Cross Blue Shield handling insurance forms. And for those of you who have like done insurance claims and haven't gotten your money. Maybe now it's different because it's computerized, but back the, back in the early nineties, it was all paper forms. And when I didn't understand them, I just hide them somewhere. <laughs> so, so, you know, of course I feel terrible about it now, but I'm like, I can't read that. They were carbon copies. And sometimes the copies that we got, which were very light, were too hard to read. And it's like, okay, this is getting hid, hidden behind, you know, this typewriter or whatever. <laughs> so I was terrible at that job, needless to say. But yeah, it was a it was a lot of clerical work. Data processing, like putting in numbers was terrible. And what blew my mind and still breaks my heart is how hard people have to work for so little money. You know, I would work eight hours, eight hour days at that time for like $7 an hour. It was crazy. And I'd be tired and, and barely able to make ends meet and, and, and having to go back the next day and no promise of anything more coming, anything more economically, anything more creatively, you know? And so, so for me, when I got home at night, there was a desperation to my writing. By that time, I was like, I want to get to the point where I can do this and and not not have to worry about whether or not I can pay the rent. And one of the first rules of writing is keep a low overhead, which I was <laughs> very good at. You know, I had a very cheap rent and and a housemaid and and ways of making it happen. And then I got a fellowship at the McDowell Colony, which was my first. It's not the McDowell Colony anymore. It's at McDowell, which was my first writing fellowship and the first time someone really saw me as a writer and I'm, you know, eternally indebted to McDowell. And that was kind of the light that shone on me that said, yeah, you can make this happen. And to go there for eight weeks and not have to worry about anything. And from there, I got a fellowship to the Fine Arts Work Center in Provincetown, which was a seven month fellowship. And because my after the fellowship, I ended up staying on for five years because my rent was really cheap and <laughs> I could I could I could write full time. You're like, be- you thought I graduated, but I didn't. I'm still here <laughs> and I'm not leaving. <laughs> No, they're sorry. You, you, they give you a place to live for free for seven months. Then you have to find your own place. But their whole idea is that they're trying to bring right. They're trying to bring artists to Provincetown to keep that 
artist community going. So they were happy that when the artists came there and I was like, yeah, I get it. This is where I want to stay. And as visual artists and writers and poets, I don't know why people say writers and poets who are all writers. I know, right? Yeah. <laughs> wow. What a story. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. Like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on LinkedIn.com slash people today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. How did you even know? Like, I didn't even know about fellowships. Like, I wouldn't have known how, I've never, I never applied, I just never, it was not on my radar. Like, how did those get on your radar? Do you even, do you remember? Yeah, I remember having friends who were constantly saying, you need to get an MFA. If you want to write, you have to have an MFA. And I knew I didn't want to go back to school and I knew I didn't want to pay for anything because I didn't want to risk debt because mm-hmm. debt was going against my plan of low overhead. Right. So I, I remember getting a, I think it was in Poets and Writers. I had, I would buy, go to Barnes and Noble and buy Poets and Writers and look for places to submit to and seeing about, I think there might've been an article on, at those times they were called writer's colonies and reading it and being, wait a minute, this is free. Wait a minute. All I have to do is apply. And I think for McDowell, I, the first time I applied, I got in and, and I, 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 let me backtrack. I also, my editor at the time, Wendy Lamb, her husband, a composer, Paul, he had been a fellow there. And he, so she she might've also told me about McDowell. Mm -hmm. And it was one of the few places at the time that was considering people who are writing young people's literature because a lot of the places were like no adults only or whatever. They, they were stupid. But McDowell was open to all genres. Now, most of those places are. But at that time, there were very few. There were people who looked down on young people's literature as lesser than, which was which is bananas and sad, but also speaks to the state of our country and the way people think about young people. Very true. Well, I have to say my second grade daughter, I have four kids, but my second grade daughter has been reading your work in her class. So when I, when I showed her this book, she was like, Oh my gosh. Anyway, she's so excited. (laughs) She, she went into school today telling her teacher that I was talking to you. So how does, I mean, how does it make you feel to start from, you know, the pretend microphone to influencing 
what's sure to be generations of children. I mean, that's amazing. A little bit old. (laughs) (laughs) It's so bananas because I was at a gathering for people of color in publishing. And there was was one woman who was an agent. There was one woman who was an editor and another woman who had just written her first book. And they they were so excited to meet me because they had read me as kids. And I was like, wow. Well, and they they were in their late twenties, early thirties. So it, it's it's interesting to watch the generation grow up. And I, I think part of it's part of why I went back to writing for adults too, because I'm like, oh, my readers are growing up. I, I yeah. still want to continue to have conversations with them. But it, I love young people so much. I mean, I they exhaust me, and I love their energy, and I love their curiosity, and I love being able. I never dreamed this, that I'd be having this conversation with them through literature, that I'd be having, you know, my own experiences as a young person legitimized by other young people in a whole different time and space, having those same experiences or being able to engage with me about them. So it, I, I, I feel grateful. I mean, if I had to choose one word, it would be grateful that it feels very full circle. Like I started out as this young person wanting to write and wanting to write books that were not speaking, wanting to write books because there were so many books in my classroom library that didn't tell my story. And mm-hmm. then as a result, write books that tell so many people's stories across, you know, gender and class and sexuality and race and all of the different things that seemingly divide us. Well, I feel like any work, I was just saying this this morning, but any work that unites our us by our emotions, right? That is the fundamental core to everybody. The same feelings, so the same hopes and dreams. And I think people forget or they they like to pretend that can't be the case to justify their other beliefs or something, but everybody has the same stuff. It's all the same love, love, is you know, all the same mm-hmm. love and attachment. And I don't know when you, when you tap into that in a book like this one or your other work or whatever, it's, you know, it makes everybody feel seen. It's so true. I'm so glad you mentioned the emotional core because I do believe that's where I start from as a writer. And I think so many of the books that grab me and hold me are because the writer has gone to that place. They're not trying to sidestep it by being quirky, acute, or, or, you know, overly engaging or getting, letting language get in the way of it. They, they start at that core and just pull me right in. So what, what is, what's like a book like that, that you've loved or something that pulled you in? I want to be pulled in. Pull me in. (laughs) Take me with you. It's what book have I read? Well, I'm thinking of the adult book I've read. I, I'm reading and I think it's on Paradise. It hasn't come out yet, but it's by the same person who did a little this little life or yep. a little life. Oh yes. my goodness. I am so deeply moved by that. Of course, you know, anything Jason Reynolds writes, he's definitely an emotional core kind of guy and Kwame, of course. I, I do feel like there are a lot of people who write for young people who really start at that point. I I go back to someone like Jane Yolen and Al Moon. That book was one of the books that helped me learn how to write picture books. And also I can revisit it again. (laughs) I can revisit it often and and still feel that tug at my heartstrings in it. The 10th good thing about Barney, I don't know if you know that book. I don't know that one. Oh, hopefully you'll never have to read it to your children, but it's about... (laughs) 
<laughs> a kid who loses their pet. Oh, their no. pet and they're trying to figure out you know the they're trying they the, the parents ask them to write 10 good things about Barney uh, and it's so beautiful it is another book that and, it, and it's not trying to be sappy at all mm-hmm. but at the same it, but it, it allows you to have that cathartic emotional release that yep. good literature allows you to have have you read Rex Ogle's free lunch or punching bag Mm-mm. He's amazing. It's, I'm uh, taking notes. No, he's so great. It's a, it's a, his own story of growing up, you know, having subsidized lunch and being embarrassed by that and the abuse that was going on. And but he he writes. I, I just love his. I love his work. Thank you for that. So free lunch, and then the other one's called punching bag. Yep, punching bags like the continuation. Free lunch is. I think middle school and then punching bag is high school and you just like kind of fall in love with him and his abuela. And I don't know. It's yeah. I love those are, you know, that's my middle grade recommendation aside from, you know, (laughs) (laughs) so what are you working on now? Right now I'm working on a screenplay that I'm supposed to get the outline in today by, but it might not happen because I want to go for a run, like run screenplay, run screenplay. (laughs) And I'm trying, I have another, picture book that's coming out this year, later this year, that's all about play that I'm, I'm, I'm excited about. I, I love the year we learned to fly for the, for the emotional core of it. I love the next book that's coming out because it's all about the games we played in the seventies and eighties when, when kids actually played in the street, as opposed to now when they're kind of not doing it as much. And what else am I working on? I'm looking around my desk. I have a, another screenplay I'm working on and I'm working on a nonfiction book for adults and I'm working on a middle grade book for young people that I can't talk about because then I won't go back and work on it. <laughs> <laughs> it's like I've already given the I you know yeah and that's the thing about it right when you write you write the things you cannot speak and once you communicate them it's like well I've spoken them I've gotten the reaction so I'm good <laughs> so I try not to speak it until oh it's gosh. done how how many days a week do you run not enough when during the pandemic I was really running it uh, running our walk or some combination every day just because we were living up at our house in Brewster and we and and you know it's right on the reservoir so we could I could actually go out and I had to escape my family so it made it <laughs> sense but now since my family is mostly gone during the day I don't have to leave the house as much so now I, I try to get out about four days four or five times a week I'm impressed. Oh, Very oh, impressed. it's hard. It's hard. It does, your knees don't hurt. I feel like I'm getting my knees. Now it does, and yeah. I'm blaming it on the cold weather because I'm old. You know, I'm much older than you, and I'm I'm blaming it. I'm like, it's not arthritis. It's because it's cold out. <laughs> so I try to do prophylactic stuff. I try to stretch a lot and take ibuprofen before I go running to see if that helps. But yesterday I went out to run, and I was able to run about a half a mile and I had to walk the other three and a half miles. I was so cranky. Like, what's going on? Well, at least it's, it's not just me then. No, not Back at to all. the emotional truth is that all of our bodies start to fall apart oh. in the exact same timeline, right? You know, like, it's like, it's like, here we go. We're like on this uh, you know, escalator up to I should say down. It's like an escalator down to disintegration and aging. And anyway, whatever. Do you have the thing when you see people move and they're like, you know, they do these dance steps and they go down or, and I'm like, how are they able to even do that? Like, I don't even think I could do that when I was 20. Oh my gosh. <laughs> one, of, one of my kids can like move her leg. Like, I'm like, 
where, how on earth? And she's like, try it. I'm like, what? I, I can't even, I can barely sit down these days. I can't even like stand up. Like, give me a minute as I haul myself up on the kitchen counter. So, yeah. But you play tennis, right? I do. Oh my gosh. Thanks for saying that. Yes, I do play tennis, but not enough, particularly not in the winter. Like, what am I going to do? I'm, I'm not like a... I'm not, a, I'm, not a, I'm not a bubble person. <laughs> Actually, I shouldn't say that. I used to be, but I don't know. These days I've been doing like an app, you know, workout app if I can. Yeah. Yeah. I did one this morning and I'm so out of shape. I should stop talking about it, but <laughs> I did my first podcast today with this author, Nicole, Nicole Perkins. And I, I like was so sweaty from unanticipated <laughs> sweat from this, what should have been easy workout that I had to like do the podcast on my knees because I didn't want to sit on my chair. <laughs> anyway, pathetic. So pathetic. Oh, man. Anyway. What did Nicole Perkins write? That name is familiar. She wrote, Sometimes I Trip on How Happy We Could Be. Oh, that's anyway. a great title. Yeah, it's good. They're, it's a collection of essays. Okay. Anyway, not to keep promoting other. Yeah, you can write that down too. <laughs> a lot of sort of sexual undertones, and but really interesting and talks about like pop culture and how she didn't, you know, she didn't see herself in, in pop culture the way you were talking about in literature, you know, The uh-huh. Breakfast Club and all these movies, John Hughes and like where was, yeah. you know, anyway. Um, okay, off topic. Okay, okay, last question, and I'll stop chit-chatting. What is your advice? This is fun. What's your advice for aspiring authors? I would say read lots of picture books. I think it's really important. I, one great thing about a picture book is it's a very short novel, right? And it gives you narrative arc. It gives you character arc and metamorphosis. It shows you how to get into a book quickly. At the beginning, it shows you how to get out of a story. And in the same way, you can learn that from a book that's 300 pages, but it's going to take you a lot longer. You're going to have a lot more text to study. So I, I always encourage young writers of all ages to read lots of picture books, well-written picture books. So, you know, they don't need to rhyme. I mean, look for the ones that have a story and, and write every day if you can. And even if it's writing down an idea or writing a poem or writing a memory or just write something to, because writing is a muscle. And if you don't use it, it atrophies. <laughs> and if you use it, it gets stronger. So that, that, that that's where I would begin to give advice. If I was still teaching, it would be a lot more advice and a lot longer. And we talk about the hero's journey and the importance of reading poetry, which I will say it's very important to read poetry. And if you don't have poetry at home, Poetry Society of America, Poetry Foundation, you can go to various sites and find really good poems. I read this beautiful poem by Sharon Oles today that it was about motherhood. You know, a lot of her stuff is about it's very emotional in this way and I just thought okay my day is done I'm oh my gosh really wait send, I want you to send me the I will I want you to send me the thing put it in the I, poem yeah okay. send me the poem I'm excited to read okay. that amazing yeah I actually I just did this roundup of the best poetry books that have come out recently oh for wow. Katie Couric Media so where, where can we find the list because I love reading poetry it's I can send you the link but I wrote it for Katie Couric Media I do these roundups uh-huh. for on her website, I don't know, every week, every other week. So yeah, but I'm always looking for for good poetry books too. So anyway, well, thank you so much. Go for your run. Don't let me hold you back. (laughs) And I hope you feel good doing it and have better luck standing up tonight (laughs) than I do. (laughs) Thank you. So fun talking to you. You too. All right. Have a great day. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. 
Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.